Right, you have to excuse me, the best analogy I had to start off today is really juvenile. Okay. But there is a... Um, when the wor- when the worst thing, news I ever got was when my mother told me when I was a teenager that I would never stop having pimples. I, I thought that was only going to last for a couple of years. And she goes, oh, no, you're going to have pimples the rest of your life. And she was right, you know. And there's an art to popping pimples. I'm not going to gross you out. But if you really want to go get grossed out, go to popthatzit.com. You didn't hear it from me. <laughs> Woo. Loving it. And the main thing when you're going to pop a pimple is you've got to determine, based on size, shape, location, history, you know, whether it's ripe or not. I, okay, I'm sorry, is that, am I, am I not, am I the only one? Because here's the thing, if you get one that's ripe and you pop it, man, that is like, ooh, that's such a good, yeah, you accomplished something, yeah, it's done, woo, that's good. But if you miscalculate, and I have done that, on numerous occasions, and you think it's right, and you go after it, you know, there comes a point of no return where you start, you can stop, and it's not, but if you, but you get that certain point where it's not happening, and you got to give a little more energy, and then you've reached a point of no return, and either it's got to give, or it doesn't, and if it doesn't, then you look at it, and now you've made it angry. (laughs) And you will pay a price. For making it angry. That thing is going to grow to 10 times its size. It's going to struggle. It, it's going to be a mess. You are not going anywhere in public without people knowing. You lost that battle once, didn't you? That's what Second Corinthians 2 is about. We're in Second Corinthians. A letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to take a look with me. We're in Second Corinthians chapter 2. But let me ask you seriously this question about... It, or let me just put it this way. If you have ever addressed a problem or a misunderstanding with someone, and by doing so, it made matters worse. Have you ever had that happen? If you have ever found yourself accused or implicated or, or uh, everybody has come to the conclusion you did something that you are not guilty of, but you don't really have a recourse or an outlet to defend yourself, If you've ever been in a position where you've been mistreated and maybe the person apologizes, but you just feel like you can't, you're having trouble letting it go, any of those been true of you, then this chapter is for you. We're going to, um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to paint the sequence for you. Sequence of events that go on behind the the latest scene for what is going to be said when Paul writes this to these people. And then once we do that, then we're going to draw some lessons, real life lessons. And they're very, very practical lessons for where you and I live, if, especially if any of those things are true of you. So here's what we're going to do to start. We're going to, we're, we're going to set the tone and, and show the sequence of events. This is going to be based on drawing the best way we can from Acts 18, Acts 19, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians to say what was going on that set up the scenario for this. Now, we want you to see where this is happening. So here's, here's a map we used before of the Mediterranean area and the key areas that, that uh, were influenced when Paul went on his missionary journeys or his, his kind of world tours to, re, to spread the message about the risen Jesus Christ. And you see Israel to the right, and then you see Greece up toward the center, Macedonia above that, and Turkey. That area, we're going to zoom in on that little area because that is the area when Paul took his second trip he started going to, to the, the, some cities that were in that area. And among them, principally, what we're going to see is four areas or four cities. 
Okay, the first one he's, we're going to talk about is Corinth. That's where this, where this letter is written to. So you see where that is on the map. The second city that's going to be mentioned is the city of Ephesus. Ephesians was written to them and others. And that's over across the Aegean Sea from there in, in what's in present-day Turkey. Then you're going to see another city north of there, a coastal city called Troas. And finally, he's going to mention Macedonia, but chances are probably pretty good that one of the principal cities that he may have been in when he mentions this is the city of Philippi, which is also a coastal city in, in Macedonia. The Philippians was written to that group of people. So most of what's we're going to have happen is going to happen in that kind of scenario. But so that this doesn't become a, a geography lesson that just bores you, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take that map and we're going to, and we're going to make a live map right here. Right, so for the next few minutes, here's what's going to happen. This kind of group right in here, you're going to be the lower right. You're going to be Ephesus. Right? Over here, you're going to be Troas. Over here, you guys get to be Corinth. And over here is Macedonia and the Philippi area. Know where you live? All right. Now, here's, here's what happened. I'm going to get a little help with this. This is, this is what happened in... Um, Paul, Paul's taken a trip already. He's established some churches and he's been to Ephesus. He's, he's probably in the Ephesus area. So we're going to have, we're going to have somebody represent Paul and I'm going to choose, you're going to be Paul. Okay? All right. So Paul is a very principal figure. And so we're going to give you a red hat that shows that you're in the center of attention. Okay. There, so that, all right. So you're Paul. Okay. Good. Nice. Look good, doesn't it? All right. Now, Paul, here, here's what Paul, Paul does. It's about 51, 52 AD. He's taking a trip. And Paul, we're just we're going to play it out. Ready? Okay, Paul, I would like you to go to Corinth. Would you do that, please? All right, he's going to move over toward Corinth and just kind of have a seat over there somewhere in Corinth. This, oh, okay, on the fringes of Corinth. <laughs> well, that's not bad because Corinth is a kind of tepid area. They, they don't, they don't really, some people respond to him. Some are a little, they, they, they're kind of for him. He, he plants a church. He doesn't want to stay. About 18 months, God says, no, stay there. I got people in Corinth. So, so he makes some impact. So we're going to give him a little, like, golf applause. Could you just give him a little golf applause for Paul? Thank you, Paul. No, not you guys. Just oh, Corinth. Come on. Play this right. Nicely done, Corinth. All right? So he's there. He's there for 18 months. And then he leaves. And he gets back to Ephesus. Eventually, he goes go back to Jerusalem. And then he makes his, uh, his third trip. He winds up in Ephesus again. It's a couple of years later. Now, when he gets there... Paul decides he's going to send a letter to the people he's, he's, he he's hopes they're doing well. And so he's going to send a letter. And he's going to send, he was going to send one to the people in Corinth. So he, he chooses somebody to be a representative of his. And there's a guy named Timothy. Now, you might have heard the name Timothy, right? So Timothy is going to be a representative of Paul. And I'm going to make you Timothy. Thank you. Lovely. Paul sends Timothy. Would you just make a gesture of sending Paul? With a letter. Paul goes to Corinth. This is not 1 Corinthians, by the way. This is, a, this is a letter. Would you just go over toward Corinth, wherever you like? All right. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, it's, Paul mentions another letter he had sent before. We don't have it. Probably a letter to encourage them, probably to see how they're doing. And there's a little, a little uh, exchange that happens. All right? So he sends Timothy and... Um, and here's a report. And the report comes maybe from Timothy, maybe from others. So would you go back to Paul and get the report? He says, and somebody named Chloe, who we're not going to pick out, says, you know what? There's, things aren't so good 
So you're going to give him a report. So the, the report is going to be a thumbs down report. Turn thumbs down. Would you give him a thumbs down? Nicely done. All right. So now Paul is serious and he goes, okay, I got to address some of this stuff. And he writes another letter. This, the letter he writes now is the letter of 1 Corinthians. He sends it with Timothy. Timothy, go on by there. All right. Thank you. He's got the letter. Very nicely done. They go to another section. Okay, good. Now, in the letter, Paul says, hey, Corinthian people, I can't wait to see you. And I'm going to make two trips. In fact, I'm going to double bless you. Luke, when he talked about this, talked about a double blessing, double grace he's going to give. He said, I got to make a plan. I'm going to head, I'm going to head to Macedonia, but I'm going to stop on the way and see you. I'm going to go there and I'm going to stop and come back. Get ready for me because I'm ready. I'm going to do that. And while we're at it, I'm going to give you some things that I, some corrections and some things you got to think about. You're not doing so well. And, and, the, and the response that comes is not even, it's not even a, a clap now. It's more, it's more of a finger snap. Okay, give me a finger snap. What do finger snaps mean? I have no idea. I just made that up right now. It's like, it's a tepid response. Okay. So something happens. He, he says that, and, but something, something, but when Timothy's there, he encounters something that, that outside false teachers have come in and the culture has influenced Corinth and Corinth has even taken a turn, turn to the worst. In particular, there's a leader from among their people, from among their church, who has stood up, and he's now he's challenging Paul. So we're going to put a black hat on the leader of the band. Who looked, who's the most evil-looking person over here? Okay. He's not named. He's not named. But he is rallying people and saying something's not right. He begins to challenge Paul. He challenges Paul's authority. He challenges his credentials. He's challenging that he's weak and he doesn't, he's not well-spoken. He's saying, I'm not, I don't believe that this guy's from God. He's beginning to influence people. So we're going to represent that negative, casting those negative aspersions by he's going to take one ball, and he's going to stand up, Timothy. He's going to let, he's going to let Timothy know what he thinks of Paul. Go ahead. And he, Okay. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Timothy's going back to Paul. <laughs> and now he's going to give him a report about what's going on in Corinth. And it is two thumbs. That's right. Two thumbs down. In all seriousness, he's saying to Paul, there is real trouble going on in Corinth. There's rebellion. There's, there's worldliness. There, there, something is not right there. So Paul makes a decision. He was going to kind of take his time going there, but Paul says, I got to get moving. So he immediately gets up and he goes straight to Corinth. He's going to go address this kind of thing. <laughs> so when that happens, if you look in 2 Timothy 2, 2, he will call this what he calls a, his painful visit. Something happens. Now, we're not told all the details, but when we piece it together, we, we, what we understand is that the opposition has grown, that his, his authority is being questioned, and basically, in, sense of, in the sense of rebellion, they have let Paul know what they think of him. Stand up, Paul. And all of them who are ready to do so, they take one of those, they stand up, and they let Paul know what they think. We've gone, we've gone full middle school now, haven't we? Yeah. You don't go full middle school. We did. Paul is so wounded, he goes, he, he goes back to Ephesus. And when he does, 
he he resolves something. Now I want you to just you can you got your Bible open? Take a look at Second Corinthians one twenty three. Second Corinthians one twenty three. I call that God is my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. What's he going to do? He's got this going on. He turns tail and goes. It seems. But he says it's not out of uh, it's not because he's fearful. It's to spare them because he loves them. He's got to figure out what's best. And, it, and then he goes on to say, um, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith that you stand firm. So I made up my mind I would not make another painful visit to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul's trying to decide what to do. He, he's not sure what, what he should do. But he's regrouping. And after he's been there a while, he decides, I have to address what's going on there and I have to set things straight. So... He writes another letter. Now, this is, this is the third letter Paul has written. We don't have the first one. We have for the second one. It's like 1 Corinthians. We don't have this one either. He calls it his severe letter. He makes reference to it in 2 Corinthians. Um, in, in verse, uh, let, let's see, verse 4, he says, I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you. So Paul writes another letter and he sends it with another friend. All right, pick a friend, Paul. All right. This is Titus. All right? Titus, would you go to... Poor Titus. It's like, go get him, Titus. Hey, would you head to Corinth? Thank you. He goes to Titus. <laughs> Titus goes with a severe letter. And Paul waits to hear back. Now, when he sent Titus, presumably he sent Titus to go there and probably to make his way to Macedonia because Paul eventually get there. It says about Paul that during this time, he can't stand the waiting. He doesn't know what to do. So you get to chapter 2, verse 12, and it says, So I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. So Ephesus has been, don't get cocky, Ephesus. You're not real great either. You got problems too. But Paul gets up and he goes to Troas. And when he gets to Troas, look what happens in verse 12 and 13. Or verse 12, he says, And when I got to Troas, I found that the Lord had opened a door for me. What that means is there was positive response. They love him. Okay, let's hear it, Troas. They love Paul. They're responsive to him. That's it. <laughs> Paul's doing great there, but you know, Paul is still grieved because he does, he's not heard from Titus. And so Paul says in verse 13, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and I went to Macedonia. Here he comes, Macedonia. Macedonia had, um, had heard the gospel. He's working with those people. And so they're just kind of regular people. They pat him on the back and give him a high five. Everybody give him a high five. Okay, good. That's nice. But Paul was waiting. And this is our focus here. What's going on here? So then, what happens finally, while he's in Macedonia, hearing no response, he's waiting, and then Titus shows up. So Titus, would you go and hang up, hang out? And Titus shows up and gives Paul a report, and here's Paul's, here's Titus's report. With one hand, he's going to say, the best news I have to give you is thumbs up. Now, if you flip to chapter 7, verses 5 to 7, here's what it says. 
When we came to Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us, now look what the Corinthians had done in response to the severe letter. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. What we presume in this thumbs up that that he gives is several things have happened. Most of the people of Corinth have repented. Most of them have turned and recognized that God is in this, that God is part of what Paul is doing, and they've turned from from the, the hard things. So there's a thumbs up. Hold up the thumbs up. But there's also a kind of a thumbs down part. Nicely done, Titus. And here's the thumbs down part. There's still a pocket of people who are struggling. There's still a pocket of people who, who, are, who are turning against him. Paul re- references him, and if you look at just chapter 10, verse 10, he says, For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. And he gives, Paul is going to give this warning. He says, Such people should realize what we're in our letters when we're absent. We will be in our actions when we're present. So Paul has got to address that. Here's the other thing that is the thumbs down. It's a thumbs up and a thumbs down. The report from Titus is the guy who's part of the church, the guy in rebellion, he's repented. Can you take the black hat off? It looks so good on you, though. Oh, <laughs> there are a pocket of others, right? He's repented. But something's happened with the people in Corinth. They're, they're angry. They're resentful. And they are, have turned on that guy. So even though he's repentant, they have decided to take out their, their negative energies and their criticisms, and they take out, and now, instead of giving it to Paul, who do they give it to? They give it to that leader. Go. Oh, oh, oh that's weak. Oh, good. Okay. And Paul is going to address what's going on there, too. So Paul now is going to write a fourth letter. He's going to send it. And the fourth letter is the one you got opened, 2 Corinthians. So he's going to address the people. He's going to encourage them. But at the same time, he's say, we got some stuff we got to deal with about how things are going. Got it? Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 2, and let's give our guys a big hand. Thank you. You guys can, you can hang out there if you want. You can go back where you want. Oh, you can keep it. It's, it's yeah. It's all yours. All right, now, how does that apply to you and me? A little history lesson, right? How does it apply? Paul is going to address some things for people on how they live life in relationships, how they live in community, how they, what you do when things don't go so right. And real quick, we're going to take a snapshot look at what he has to say for four scenarios that are related to each other. And maybe you can relate to one or more of these. First, we're going to see what he has to say about the whole scenario of about giving spiritual correction when it's needed. So go back and look again at verse chapter 1, verse 23. Remember, there's accusations that have been going on about him, about his, what his spirit is and why he, why, he, why he seemingly turned tail and ran, why he didn't, you know, what, what, and now he's sending letters back. And here's what he says about this whole thing. He knows that spiritual correction is necessary, but he says, I call on God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I didn't return right away. He's saying right away, I, I, I'm going to get back there. But it was in order to spare you. Why was he sparing? Because there's a motive for Paul. 
His purpose in giving spiritual correction is not primarily to punish people. Punishment has to be part of discipline, but that's not his ultimate goal. And he has a feeling that if he went immediately back, can you relate to this? You go immediately back to a situation and you just got your both barrels loaded, man. You are cocked and ready. He says, if I go back, I, that's pro- I could have the authority to correct you, but it's order to spare you because you people, you're a source of my joy. That's what he says at the end of chapter one. We work with you for your joy because it's by faith that you stand firm. And that's why I decided I wouldn't make another painful visit to you. Verse two, for if I grieve you, who's left to make me glad? But you, who I'm grieved. I wrote as I did, so that when I come, I shouldn't be distressed by those who ought to, t- to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. There's a principle for living life with God. And that's what I'm signed up to do. I think most of us in the room have probably on some degree said, yeah, I'm, I'm signed up to do that too. Some of you are on the journey to figure out what that looks like. That Jesus Christ is the center of that. He is the life giver. He's the Lord of it. He's the one that we follow. Well, what does it look like in real terms? What does it look like in practical ways? Here's one of them. When you do that, you become part of a family, part of a body. He calls it his kingdom and his, and his army and his family and his body and many other analogies. But you're part of something. And when you're part of that, some, there's, a, there's a privilege and responsibility that comes along with that. Here's one of them. When another one of the Christ followers needs correcting, it's up to those who are around him to do, initiate the correcting. To have the courage to do it. On September 12, 2001, day after the attacks, in the New York City Transit Authority, they came, there, somebody coined a phrase, and it became what Homeland Security ha- adopted. And you've probably heard it. And the phrase get, got used is, if you see something, say something. You might have heard that. If you see something, say something. Now, in that context, they're talking about if you see somebody do something, go to somebody else and talk to them. In the context of God's kingdom, he says, look, you're all each other's brother's keeper. You're, we're on point with each other. There are people who are going to need correcting. And when it happens, have the courage to say something. Go to that person. Deal with it. But along with that is do it correctly. Do it right. Do it. Look, look at how Paul describes himself. When he, he says it, verse 4 of chapter 2, I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. Not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. There's a motivation behind it. And it's not just to make yourself feel better or to take a pound of flesh out of somebody who's doing something wrong. No, it's because there's a passionate love connection that you've got with the other people on the team. They're the source of your joy. And if something's wrong with them, something's wrong with all of us. That's what he, he said in chapter in 1 Corinthians, his first letter. If one part of the body suffers, everybody suffers. So do something. Say something. But do it right. Do it with anguish and with patience and with yearning and not with vengeance. Paul's carefulness is misinterpreted as cowardice by these people. Paul is making it very clear. He says, as God is my witness, here's why I did what I did. It's because I have anguish and love and you're my source of joy and I don't want to harm you any further. I still have to say some hard things. I signed up for it. I owe it to you. 
So, he sets a precedent for us as fellow journeyers here. That when you see somebody who, is in, who needs some spiritual correction, it's not the pastor's job. It's not the church's job. It's all of our job to address it and to do so out of, with a sense of anguish and out of love. Let me just ask you this question. Who initiates spiritual correction in the circle you're in right now? Who initiates it? Does, does anybody come to your mind? Who, who's the person who tends to do that most? Maybe it's you. Maybe, maybe there's one person in the cell group, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, they'll deal with it. Something, oh, that, that didn't sound right. You know, oh, I bet so-and-so, I bet they're going to say something because they're good at that. You know, they like that confrontation stuff. I'm not into that. Who is it in your circle? If we're living the way that God designed us to work, there's not just one person comes to mind. Whoever's closest, whoever's in proximity, whoever observes it, and, and sometimes it's you, to do it correctly. If you do it, can I ask this? As we apply it to ourselves, if you've seen something that, that you feel like needs corrected in somebody and you acted on it, what was your tone when you did it? Was it a tone that kind of came across, could have come across as somebody's primarily offended or angry or just trying to prove themselves right? Or is it a tone that reflects what Paul said here? A desire for joy to come, a des- an anguish of heart in, in addressing it. He gives lessons about, on giving spiritual correction, but he also, there's a lesson here about receiving spiritual correction. Here's a, here's a principle you, we've got to get through our heads. That your life, my life, your spiritual choices and mine, they never happen in a vacuum. There is always a ripple effect. There are always people affected by your choices. There is no such thing as a victimless crime. There is no such thing as a sin that's just a personal sin. It has an effect. You may not even think anybody else knows what it is. But I will tell you, based on the word of God, that it never happens in a vacuum. It is having an effect. Paul is saying, he's saying it directly in verse 5 and following. If anyone has caused grief, he has grieved not so much me as he has grieved all of you. He's specifically talking to the guy who is causing the problems because he's going to address that a little bit further. But there's a general principle here that when you choose to sin, it always affects others. I don't have to tell some of you this because there are some of us sitting right here, right now, and you have been hit by the shrapnel of somebody else's choices. Somebody else has chosen to go a path that is not the way of health. They've, gone, they've, they've made choices, and it's had an effect on you. It has negatively affected you or a group of people. The person may not even know it. They may be cavalier about but you know that it has pained you. Paul says, look, in the kingdom of God, the spiritual connection is such that you never act alone. You always have influence on other people. And so the place... Uh, that, it has an effect on community, but it has a place on community, being connected with people. And there's a leverage that comes from the community that it deals with it. In, in, his first, in first Corinthians, the second letter that he sent to these people, Paul heard one report where somebody was in an incestual relationship. If you go back and look at chapter 5 of 
And he says, look, what are you guys doing? You got this going on right under your noses. You got to deal with this. You've got to address this. You're in community. You don't just let that go. It's affecting everybody. You need to discipline this person. And by discipline, it means leverage him with your community. Help him understand there's a price to be paid in the intimacy with God and with you if he continues in rebellion. So the community is invited to, in, to invite people to repentance, to nudge them toward it. We are supposed to do that with each other. Paul had to send a severe letter and say, look, it's time to take off the gloves because you're not getting it. But it's still the responsibility of people living under God to do that with one another. Let me ask you this question. When was the time somebody initiated spiritual correction toward you? Ooh, that's a tougher one. It's one thing to, it's one thing to say, oh, I might need to be responsible but how do you react when somebody approaches you and they're you're the one that they're saying i see something i need to ask you about this you're negatively affecting the people around you what is your response what's the state of your heart here's the cool thing about what happened in corinth paul's letter had an effect even just as a letter and people a great majority of those folks decided we got to make a change including the guy who was most responsible at the heart of this thing. Sorry, could be any of you. That person changed. When he did, it brought up another teaching point. And this was that Paul says, let's talk about forgiveness after repentance. See, there's a typical way people in our culture deal with when you, they've been wronged. There, there's a way that, that the basic mentality says, look, if you wrong me, that you have forfeited the right to future relationship. I mean, right? Things are never the same between us. You cross the line and you, for, you can forget about it. It was, here, here's just a short little example from a recent movie called Pitch Perfect about how forgiveness typically is asked for and what's, how it's responded to in our culture. Take a look. Why did you say that? Sorry. I laid back down and I And I'll be with you and have me. I want back in. Are you your father's daughter? Which father? Because the father in heaven says there's a different way. There, there's a, a website called Give Forgiveness where people are encouraged to 
find ways to express the need for forgiveness and to grant it. Joan London was uh, put a quote on it, and, and this is what she said. Holding on to anger, resentment, and hurt only gives you tense muscles, a headache, and a sore jaw from clenching your teeth. Forgiveness gives you back the laughter and the lightness in your life. An author by the name of um, Simon Doonan wrote in an article, published an article called The Healing Power of Holding a Grudge. He said, Our softy culture says we should forgive even the most heinous crimes. Sometimes it's healthier not to. He he quotes Joan London and he says, I'm a firm believer that grudges and the bearing thereof can be less burdensome than Joan London might think. In some instances, they can actually be quite invigorating. Inevitably, after musing for a while, I start to get irate at the injustices of uh, I see, and I can feel my body fill with anger. But I wear that clenched jaw and tension headache, sorry, Joan London, with, as a badge of honor. Out of respect for the memory of the injustice, I will carry that rage and indignation to my grave. No forgiveness necessary. Something about that makes my skin crawl a little bit until I think, yeah, but I do that too. And now Paul in a specific scenario with somebody who has been leveraged by community, somebody who has turned and said, I need, I need to turn my attention, I, I need forgiveness, somebody who is repentant, he turns to these people and say, you're not letting it go. Take a look at what he says in verses 6 to 10. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. And if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. We can talk a whole lot more about this. Let me just ask you this. Is there somebody who you're still punishing? Somebody who who may have done a, a great disservice to you great injustice but perhaps they've turned if they've turned if they've sought true forgiveness and if they are repentant god says there's something that needs to be different about how you approach them than the rest of the world than what this article would say find a way to grant forgiveness to let go of the ongoing resentment to not let it control your life take the black hat off the person because you know what? It's not your job description anymore to decide who's, who wears it. God is the ultimate judge. God will decide what the path of that person's life does from now. But as much as lies within you, if forgiveness is sought, if restoration is sought, take the black hat off them. Not just because it makes you feel better. Not just because it serves you, but because it is the character of Jesus to do so. That's why Ephesians 4 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. So be imitators of God as dearly loved children. In Colossians 3, it says, You must make allowances for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. And here's the same reason. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And one more verse at the end of this. this is, it almost is like a little tagline, but it's really significant. Paul says, look, there's an, here, here's another reason why this needs to happen. He says in verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us. 
for we are not unaware of his schemes. You have an enemy. He's fighting you all the time. He's laying obstacles and roadside bombs in your way. He is throwing temptations at you. He is trying to get you to subvert. He wants you to be independent from the God who he calls a monster controller terrorist in your life. He wants you to join him in that rebellion. In order to do that, he does a, has a lot of tools. The Bible has a whole lot of ways it describes what he does. He's not just a guy with pitchfork and red and smoke coming out of his ears. He is a master manipulator. He is a, he, he is a leader, and he's good at what he does. When the Bible describes it, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it, it says that he has this capacity to blind the minds of people. In 2 Corinthians 11.14, it says that he is a masquerader. He masquerades as somebody who's doing right. In 1 Peter 5, it describes him as somebody who prowls around and then devours like a a roaring lion. In Luke 22, verse 31, when Peter was dealing with him, Jesus said, Satan, here's what he wants to do. He wants to sift you. He wants, like like wheat. He wants to put you through the ringer to weaken you and, and and to break you down. And now Paul says to the the folks in Corinth and to us, look, don't be unaware. We aren't unaware of his schemes. But of all those things that the enemy does, I personally believe that one of the key things he does, he's called the father of lies. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He's called all kinds of things. But you know what he's doing here? This is what he wants to do. He wants to isolate you. He wants to divide you from other people. He wants to get you off by yourself so he can pick you off more easily and if he can cause division and disruption if he can cause people to be to be ostracized long term then he can, he's got him right where he wants him plus he's got a seed of deception within you so paul says look don't let don't be outwitted by this guy he's playing a game on you you're some let's just say it, some of us right now we're being played we're being played by the enemy we're justifying in our minds what we're doing but we, he's got us div- dividing ourselves. He's got us isolating ourselves. He's got us saying we can cope on our own. And he's got us right where he wants us. Paul says, you are not ignorant of his schemes. Don't be. There's a call that says re-engage, reaffirm, re-enter, restore relationships. Is there one that needs restored in your life? Is there somebody who you have kind of laid aside who has walked the road and it's time to say to them, you know, been hard on you. Time to bring back. Or maybe it's you. Maybe it's you who've wandered away. Maybe you have just isolated yourself. Don't be ignorant. Don't get played. Re-enter so that he so that we thwart the enemy's advances. This is real life stuff Paul is talking about. Said in a historical context, but it's happening right now. It's happening in our lives. It's happening in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, in our groups. Let's be people who say we are not going to be played. We're going to thwart the enemy and we're going to walk through the character of Jesus in the way he deals with when people need confronted, when they need restored, and what our part is in it. Pray with me.